Hi, I'm Kara Oakley. And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, we're sitting down with writers from across the genre spectrum. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. So Kara, today we are talking to the Park Sisters, Ginger and Francis, and they each write their own respective books, but they also have collaborated on a number of picture books, a memoir, all kinds of things. So it's only appropriate that I ask you a little bit about maybe some of the projects that you've collaborated on or how you've used or seen collaboration in your own writing life. You know, I, 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 I'm totally fascinated by, um, to hear how they work together because this is just like not something I've ever done. I've never, I've never done a collaborative piece with anybody. Um, although at the same time, collaboration does feel like such a huge part of, of my writing because of how, how workshops work, how like I have like my, my one or two, like very trusted readers that always look at my stuff before I'm willing to send it out or show it to anybody else. And, you know, I was also thinking about different ways in which, you know, even for, for somebody like me who doesn't like co-write things with anybody, I always get such inspiration from like group writing projects. Like I think about, um, there, there's a writer named Amy Attenberg who runs something called a thousand thousand words of summer and it's like for for two weeks uh, every uh, everybody who's participating commits to writing a thousand words a, a day for two weeks so there's just this this big group of writers who's encouraging each other and getting a lot of you know positive positive feedback on just keep going just keep going and you know by the end of those those couple of weeks you've gotten so much farther in a project than you might have otherwise if you weren't like kind of doing this with this group so i think it's it it, it, it it's something that, that is really motivating to me in some ways do you do you collaborate with anybody ever? No, no, I really, but I use it a lot in my teaching because, um, mm. you know, I'm just like you with my own writing, kind of the only stages of collaboration would be like in workshop or sending to somebody for feedback. But my writing has shifted a lot over the last few years. So yeah, but I use the collaboration a lot in class. So I teach digital creative writing. And sometimes we look at um, genres of that that are just not doable in a semester or a month or something like that. So, um, you know, making an effective Twitter bot or making a transmedia story. So a story told over a number of different platforms. And so I like to use collaboration in that sense so people can sort of talk through and build the project and have a little bit of fun without, you know, putting in weeks and weeks of work, but to collaborate on building an idea and thinking through how it's going to work um, and to write some sample posts for each sort of platform. And, you know, finally being back in person, getting them to map it out on the whiteboards and stuff like that. I think there's a lot of beauty in that process and just frankly, some fun because writing can be isolating. We all know that. Um, so it's it's nice to just sort of let loose a little bit and let the imagination go wild. I love kind of thinking about how that collaboration must sort of influence all of their writing process um, as well. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it has like such a huge effect on it. Well, yeah, I'm really, I'm really curious to hear about uh, Ginger and Francis's process and, and how they, how they managed to, to, um, to write together. Francis Park is the author or co-author of 11 books, including the memoir, That Lonely Spell and the children's book, Goodbye 382 Shin Dang Dong. She's also also the author of two forthcoming novels, The Summer My Sister Was Cleopatra Moon and Blue Rice. Inspired by her heritage, Ginger Park's children's books have received many awards, 
She's the author of the historical middle grade novel, The Hundred Choices Department Store. She's also the co-author of the forthcoming picture book, Grandpa's Scroll, with her sister, Frances. Welcome, Ginger and Frances. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I want to ask you about collaborating. You've written a number of books together and even have a joint author website. What is it like um, having this kind of collaborative writing partnership? And what's your writing process? Well, it's it's always just organically work for us. We decided that we wanted to write our first children's book together back in the 90s. And as it almost always happens, one of us comes up with the idea and then the other one, you know, and then we decide who's going to draft out, draft it out. And then it kind of goes back and forth. And it's kind of, it's a silence uh, process, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, since we've been working together, collaborating, gosh, for like three decades now, I think our first book was accepted in 1994. The process always changes with technology. I mean, we used to do everything, you know, just handwritten, and then we'd go to the electric typewriter. I remember we, we felt so technologically advanced when we got an IBM Selectric. But we used to do, you know, little, little, you know, edits of each other's manuscripts in the margins. But during the day, <laughs> when we were face to face, we never once spoke of the manuscript. It, it's almost as if it would ruin the magic of it. Yeah. And we even wrote novels together doing that. Yeah. That wrote for years and it would just kind of go quietly back and forth. Well, it was an organic process. Mm-hmm. It's not one like we said, okay, we're we're not going to talk during the day. We're only going to go into the margins. It really was an organic process that just really seemed to work. And, you know, throughout the decades, things changed. We started corresponding through email, you know, instead of just, you know, the margins. So it kind of expedited projects as well. And you know, for us, we write together, but we also write apart. But writing together, when you feel like you're a team, I don't know, there's something empowering about it. It's almost as if once you send that manuscript out, you are certain it's perfect. Right. Because we never question ourselves. Because we're we're each other's editor. So mm-hmm. it, it's worked for three decades. And we're really excited about our new book coming out um, in March. It's a picture book, first one in 15 years. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about the the picture book, especially after such a long uh, gap in time? Well, it was a funny process because we actually drafted out, well, I mean, we thought it was perfect. And it goes to show you, even when that you have a team, mm-hmm. things aren't always perfect. But about 15 years ago, we had drafted out the story and uh, we thought it was perfect. <laughs> We keep using the word perfect. I know. We (laughs) thought it was perfect, even though we realize now it was just a draft and we tried to submit it to agents and no one responded. And so we kind of forgot about it. And we were telling ourselves, well, the world just doesn't understand. (laughs) You know, this is a perfect manuscript and it just needs time. Well, it did need time because sometimes, you know, when you have a project, you have to walk away from it. And we did for 15 years, and we probably wouldn't have even picked it up had it not been for the pandemic. That's probably one of the few positive aspects of this pandemic, at least for us personally. And we opened it up, and we almost died. (laughs) 
we were like, oh my gosh, this is so terrible. We have to rewrite well, this. That, it's a, that's, it's that's a beautiful thing premise. about, yeah, putting something aside and then you look at it with a new pair of eyes. And sometimes you can see the flaws and then dive into it again and make it what you wanted it to be in the first place. And on top of everything, it, it's almost like this manuscript, it's called Grandpa's Scroll. And it, it almost feels like this was its time. Mm -hmm. Like 15 years ago, it wasn't its time. And it gently explores the topic of grief, which is, you know, a topic that's very hard for children. I was relatively young when <clears throat> we lost our father. So, you know, we, we kind of, and, and Francie too, and we kind of, we understand that aspect of grief and how most kids don't understand it until perhaps a grandfather dies. But, you know, kids do lose their parents. And so this book is about pen pals, uh, a little Korean girl living in DC. And she writes letters to her grandfather in the countryside of Korea. And they only write back and forth because he does not have a computer. And so you see how very different their lives are and they share what they're doing in their lives, but he's planning his first trip to this country to see the granddaughter for the first time. And Francie, I'll let you finish. Well, you know, we have an interesting correspondence because there's comparisons in the culture. Like she'll say, oh, I, you know, when I see you, I'm going to show you how to do art on the computer where he is a master calligrapher. And, you know, we always try, as Korean American sisters, we like to talk about our heritage and the American, the two heritages. Um, the but that yeah, but that it always covers universal ground so that children from anywhere can, can relate to it. So when they're about to make, the family in the United States is about to make their trip, the grant they get word that the grandfather dies and instead of him coming over they they go over there they go over to korea right and she knew her grandfather had been creating a scroll for her with a poem on it but he said that they would finish it together and when so they, it's like a korean scroll yeah korean scroll yeah. and when when they get to korea they realize that the parents think the scroll is done, but Lily, the little girl, knows it's not done. She Bigger said, letters. yeah, no, he said we were going to finish the scroll together. And in the end, she writes her own poem and then it's done. Exciting. And like all of our works, it it there are, you know, little glimmers of inspiration. Like our dad did calligraphy to relax, a uh, Korean calligraphy. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, he was also, ink. yeah, he was also um, a major letter writer because he worked for the World Bank and was gone half the time. And we received a letter from him every single day. And if he didn't get a letter from, and you know, that's back when it took 10 days to Air get from mail. here to like Bangkok. And um, well, our mom made us yeah. start writing letters when he was on his way to the airport. Oh, yeah. So he would get oh, one. Wow. Every day. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, that's that's great that there's a new children's book coming out. Um, and I I know you've you've written kind of both children and middle grade and and adult. You've you've kind of done a, in a lot uh, work in a lot of different genres. So specifically, what is it that draws you to to children's fiction, and what are the, some of the possibilities in there that you maybe don't get to explore in other in other genres? I really am less children's oriented than Ginger. She was the one that yeah drew me into it. I've always been more adult oriented. So with children's literature, I've always gravitated to mm -hmm. children's literature. You know, sometimes you're the youngest in the family and you lose a parent young. Your soul is always young. And um, honestly, again, the process was organic. It's not like I said, I want to be a children's author. I mean, some people have that plan. They chart it out and, you know, head out to sea to figure it out. But for me, it really was when my father died, I realized I knew very little about our family. And I can remember as a child walking by uh, a black and white photo of my mother's family from Northern Korea. It was so ancient looking these people dressed differently they and and they were all they had all passed away but before I was born so I really didn't take an interest in it they really were like ghost images from the past but after my father died I realized I knew very little about my Korean heritage and it was so important for me to sit down with my mom and learn everything I could because, you know, I felt at that time at life became urgent and I felt that our time together was like sand in an hourglass. I had to talk to her now. I couldn't keep putting it off. And what I didn't realize is that I was documenting all of these stories from the past. And I realized these are stories I really think the children would love. You know, because my mom, one of the first stories she told me, like growing up, she always said she had to run away from home. And we were like, oh, OK, she's a runaway. You know, I mean, we didn't really think about it, but we asked her, why did you have to run away? And it was because of the division of the country. And she was seeking freedom and she was young. She was young. And we thought, gosh, you know, children would be so they, they need characters that they can look up to and admire. And they need characters that can tell them they can do anything. And it's not like I was, I was thinking that when I was writing it. I was just saying, you know, Mom, your story is so interesting. I think kids would really love this. Well, interestingly, while we were growing up, I'm a little older than Ginger, but our mom didn't really talk about any of these things until after our dad died. Yeah. So we knew something big had happened and we would go overseas in, you know, every third summer. And this really was still post-war Korea because Korea didn't recover. South Korea didn't recover for a long time. And all we saw was poverty. That's really, it was, it's unbelievable. It's like ingrained in our heads. And we just felt like, gosh, why are Koreans so unlucky? I, I want to go back home, you know, wait for the popsicle man and, and whatnot. But once we came to understand what had happened, like Ginger said, we, we decided to write about it. And our first one was called My Freedom Trip, A Child's Escape from North Korea. 
And we modeled that after our mom's actual journey. And in the end of the book, she never sees her mother again because her mother stayed on the other side and was hoping to escape to later, but then the border was closed. And um, every publisher, we did not have an agent, every publisher, nearly every publisher we sent it to accepted it. With one caveat, we had to change the ending. We had to have them reunited. I remember, just said no. I remember one editor said, wow. children like fairy tale endings. Yeah. And I was like, hmm. No, that's giving no. them a disservice. It is. And not that there's not enough violence in the world, you know, that mm -hmm. children are exposed to. But I think it's important. We think it's important that kids understand that, you know, there is a price for freedom. You aren't just free. You don't just step on, you know, American shores and life. You know, it's a great American, you know, lifestyle. It's mm -hmm. not like that. I mean, my mom never saw her mom again and even though you know she lived in the free world she often thought that maybe she would be happier she had never left and even, and even in her 80s when she would talk about her mom she'd go my mom she always sounded like a little girl yeah she still did because there's a part of her who would always be that child mm -hmm. who left that dark spring night and, and a lot of that is, you know, because you never know. Like back then, they really thought they would be reunited in a couple weeks. Even and when they came to the United States, they still thought yeah, that. Yeah, but they a couple weeks back. turned into a couple months, and a couple years. years. And our mom, you know, she did not give up hope probably for 50 years. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the tragedy. So we, so the, the children's books that we have written, I mean, Oftentimes people say, oh, they're, they're serious topics. I mean, we do have a whimsical side to us too. I wanted to ask, you know, you've, you've talked so much and so wonderfully about, you know, talking to your mom about her past and, you know, learning about your father and writing these stories. So did, did writing these children's books and the hundred choices department store, did that sort of change your view of your parents learning all about this history? Oh gosh. Yes. Yes. I mean, for me anyway, my father was just, you know, the man who took care of us. He was our rock. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about his life back in Korea, not really. And, you know, more tragically, my mom's life because it was completely shattered by war. So, yes, it 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 made me realize, you know, our mom was afraid to drive up to the grocery store two miles down the road. And I would say to her, Mom, you crossed the border and had, you know, machine guns put to your head. What's, why are you afraid? And she would always say, when you have to be brave, you will be brave. And, and that stuck with me. But she didn't have to be brave going to the grocery store. So we always drove her. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an interesting thing about our mom is she, she was sort of the it girl. Yeah, up in northern Korea where she grew up and uh, her her family was was more well-to-do than most and she was really pretty and that when she came to this country she felt like no one and she couldn't speak the language and she didn't have a certain confidence we never thought about it 
until we would be in soul with her. And you just saw the transformation. She, it was stunning. She was like another person, even just in her gait. You could yeah. see it. it. You could see it. Well, it was really sad because she came to this country when there there were no Korean communities, not really. You know, it was her living in a white world and I can remember her telling me that the two things that she thought most were most strange when she came to this country, the smells, mm -hmm. just everything smelled differently and the wide open highways. She had never seen anything like that. She was thinking the highways are so wide and they connect you everywhere. You know, where yeah. she grew up, she just stayed in her small city. Well, one other thing, the public displays of affection. Yeah. That was like a shock to her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, she gosh. was very stoic, you know, very <laughs> stoic. But we definitely viewed them differently and um, realized there, there was so much more to our parents yeah. than them just being our parents. They were people with very rich histories. You know, I, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about, uh, Francis, about your book, The Lonely Spell, because... You know, as you said, a lot of these stories didn't come out until after your father died. And you got to hear a lot of this from your mother, but with your father, it was sort of different. And, you know, you've, you've talked about the lonely spell being like a love letter to your late father. And I'm, I'm curious about what writing that was like, just because the experience you had about learning about him was, was obviously so different than well, it was with your mother. Yeah, the whole memoir experience, and I had never written a true memoir We've written a memoir about the chocolate shop that was kind of a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. um, but this was like every single word was true and a lot of them hurt. And they did. They just, I, the first one I wrote was, um, hey, mister, your shoelace is untied. And I had no idea I was going to write a collection. I just thought, I'm just going to try to imagine what it was like being my dad and coming to this country in 1954. And it was, you know, part of it, well, a lot, I'm older than Ginger, so I did like know a lot my dad about my dad. We did sit down and he would tell me stories about his impressions here and you know, how he loves Sunoco because they gave him, you know, a credit card when Esso turned him down, you know. So um, very devoted. Was, I said, you know, I'm going to write this. I don't know if I'm going to finish it. It's going to be lawless. I am not going to grade myself. And when I was done with it, I thought, gosh, that was kind of cool. I really, you know, I enjoyed it. I felt like I went on a journey with him and that became another, that turned into another essay. And I began writing several about him, but then they started to include my mom and sometimes us, you know, in the, in the fifties and sixties and, um, you know, and even with friends, but at the, at the end, after seven years, when I finished, there are 26 pieces, you realize what really mattered to you, you know, because I really wasn't judging myself. I never said, okay, I'm going to write this about this person, this person, this person. No, I just, 
I just pick up the pen and, and I would just write. And my mom, three of the essays were about her. The first one being, you two were so beautiful together. That was something a woman in Safeway said to us when she saw me trying to figure out why my mom was so upset that the meat didn't have the sale price on it. And I'm like, mom, what are you saying? What are you saying? You know, and this woman was watching us and she was in tears. And when she said that, I thought, you know what? That is perfect. And um, I wrote a story about her and I going back to Seoul, Korea, 1980, right after my dad died to smuggle money back into this country that belonged to them, and which I didn't know until the night before we were going to be wearing a lot of it. You know, thank God I was so young and naive. Yeah, I wouldn't do it today. Yeah, you were <laughs> you know? doing. Oh my God, because Korea, South Korea back then is not what it was like now. No. I was approached by police all the time. Yeah. And they knew you were American. Oh, they knew. They knew you were American. But writing the uh, memoir was quite a journey for me. Quite a journey. I wasn't expecting it to be such a wonderful experience, frankly. I, I love that essay. And I also just, you know, you're talking about your mom's transition when you were there. And I really saw that in that essay um, in particular, just the oh. confidence and I'm going to just let you know what you need to know kind of deal. That was, that was great. And I think there's something really to be said about in so far of writing something so deeply personal is allowing it to be lawless. And sometimes I feel like as a writer, we put too many rules on ourselves and we don't just sort of write. And it sounds like it was extremely fruitful. Of course it was um, extremely fruitful to just be lawless and yeah. just write. And there's a lot of power in that, I think. So we we wanted to end on a, a bit of a different note. So we've you've talked a little bit about, we didn't get too deep into Chocolate Chocolate, your shop in DC, but since you do own a chocolate shop and your memoir is about owning the chocolate shop, we were wondering if you could tell us what chocolates that you sell specifically might pair well with your respective books so that our listeners could go pick up some chocolates and enjoy as they read. Well, for the 100 Choices department store, I think, oh, I think wine chocolates. It wasn't something that I had in the book. However, if, if potential readers are listening to this, her brothers did bring her wine chocolates from uh, Europe, and she loved them. So I would say wine chocolates, and we do have wine chocolates in our shop. DC is one amazing. of the few places that you can sell real liver chocolate. <laughs> it's not excellent. <laughs> well, that's a tough one for me. Um, I always think of chocolate as a mood thing because we we carry so many different kinds and they're so different from each other. Now, in that lonely spell, I do talk about these gourmet chocolate covered toffees. And they come in milk, white, and dark, and they are delicious. And they are part of our chocolate bar where we have like 16 different, just drop dead, gorgeous, delicious chocolates. There are sea salt, dark caramels. There are um, salted caramels in milk and dark. There's salted almonds. There's mint chocolate malt. I would like get a giant two pound bag and have them all with me when I was reading. 
Uh, I'm just saying that, that that would be a great idea. The chocolate bar. Well, real quickly about the chocolate bar. A customer was just in the other day, young gentleman, and he turns around. He was over there for a long time, just getting a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And then he turns around, he goes, you know, when I come in here and I go to that chocolate bar, I am in my own world. I just dig into all the different chocolates. And then I know yep. that I'm going to have a party later. It was so cute. We have people coming, you know, what with the pandemic and all, coming in, slowly coming back to work, hybrid style, but they're like, you can never close. Do you hear me? You can never close, okay? <laughs> and we're like, okay. <laughs> it's nice to think that you bring happiness to the city, you know? We do know that people have told us there was... Um, you should have had a warning in your chocolate chocolate book yeah that you should have chocolate at hand when you read this book because everyone craves this chocolate because we oh yeah because we talk about chocolate a lot yeah well a lot chocolates and every single chapter on the street ladies begin i don't know if you can see it you begins see with the the bonbon of the era like, <laughs> but you know what's sad though I know most of them we don't even have them anymore I know they'll come in still looking yeah. for chocolates from the 80s yeah or they'll call and say yeah I read your book and I'd like you to mail me you know one of each of the bonbons that you talk about <laughs> that heads up your chapters and we're like well we don't have half of them anymore you know so we do substitutions don't we yeah yeah well, <laughs> listeners, read the books and buy the chocolates. That's how you're going to support the Park Sisters here. <laughs> well, it's been so wonderful talking with both of you today. Thank you so much for joining us. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Jordan Bostick as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on. <laughs>